three o'clock in the morning, I got a call that my office was on fire. That's Mike Morse, founder of Michigan's largest personal injury law firm. I sped to my office and I saw the fire trucks there and my secretary was there and we stood there and we cried and that was devastating. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp Video, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Mike Morris to talk about the steps that he took to take his law firm from unpredictable to consistently profitable, why he believes Cherry Garcia beats Vanilla, and the one key hire he believes you should make that will absolutely transform your law firm. I don't care what you do, but you're gonna have so much extra time on your hands when you delegate all that bullshit. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Most revolutionary leaders have a unique origin story, and Mike is no different. He got a lot of inspiration from his father, his mentors, and his time waiting tables. So I love hiring people who have worked in restaurants and who have waited tables. I've actually thought about writing a book about how waiting tables had, had made me a successful trial lawyer. If you're a waiter, waitress, working in the service industry, you know how to deal with customers. You know how to multitask. You know how to read people. So when I would go up to a table, every table is different. Some people want a talkative waiter. Some people want an informative waiter. Some people want to be left alone. You have to be able to read the table within a second. And that helped me with jurors. So when I would go in front of jurors and I'd start talking to them, I could tell instantly if they liked me, if they didn't like me, if they were annoyed to be there, if they were happy to be there. That's just one example. One of my best employees I found at a restaurant. I was at a restaurant. She gave me the best service ever. I was with my kids. I was with my wife. And she's my current receptionist. She's been with me 15 plus years, one of the best hires. And she came from a restaurant. Yeah. It, it, you know, to even go back a, even a bit further. So clearly you were very entrepreneurial from an early age, but what led you down the, the practice of law? So my father was a personal injury lawyer and I grew up obviously admiring him. And every Saturday as a child, he would take me downtown Detroit to his office building. I remember those days fondly. We would ride the elevators up 20, 30 floors to his office um, I saw his clients, how they greeted him. I would go to depositions with him. I would sometimes go to court with him. And I saw his passion for his clients. I saw his love for the law. And it made me want to be a lawyer. And I never really considered anything else seriously. I went to school out in Arizona, but I came back to Detroit to go to law school and the ultimate goal was to practice law with my dad. Um, I would go to his office during law school, first year law school, and he would study with me and he would explain to me the crazy cases that I was learning because I didn't understand half of them my first year. And uh, 
the plan was to work together, partner together one day. And uh, that's, that's why I went down that path. Now, I know you mentioned that was the plan, but as you talk about in the book, clearly that did not come to fruition. It seems like that entire process and on your way to even starting a firm was there was, there was many, many barriers that stood in the way of that and probably many obstacles you ran into. You know, writing this book has been a very cathartic event for me. Most entrepreneurs I know, and I don't know if you're like this, Michael, but you know, we don't have we don't take time to stop and smell the roses. We keep looking for that next win and we don't stop we don't high five even and so writing this book i've had to look at my whole life and i i realized for the first time in the last year how many obstacles i have overcome to get to where i am and in 50 plus years i've never really thought about it so what you're referencing in the book is i tell the story that you know in my first year of law school during my exam period of first year uh, my father was down in Mexico giving a speech to other trial lawyers uh, for one of the national trial institutes. And he died of a heart attack at age 49. And I talked to him that morning. I got the call that he died in Mexico. And it was probably the single worst event in my entire life. I had two more exams to take. I'm thinking, do I even want to be a lawyer anymore? My law school professor's uh, made me take the exams. I had to take the exams. He got me a job my first year at the largest personal injury firm in Michigan at the time, coincidentally, because he wanted me to get real world experience before I worked for him. He wanted other lawyers to teach me other than him. And I still showed up at that job a week later. And it was a hard summer uh, missing my dad. I mean, 49 years old, I'm 52 now. And it's to say it's crazy to think about uh, he's been gone 30 years. It's It's crazy. But that was my first you know, other than my parents getting divorced, that was my first major fire that I had in my life. And, and it was, uh, it was pretty brutal, but I, I moved on. I finished law school, cum laude, set up, uh, worked for another firm for a few years and then set up my practice, uh, 1995, three years after that. In terms of setting up the practice, was this an experience that you had always kind of set out to start your own law firm or was there an event that essentially triggered that, you know, you had to do this? Going back and looking at my life, I realized that some of the decisions I've had to make were thrust upon me and weren't voluntary. And I acknowledge that because I think it's important for, you know, as, as I'm going around talking to lawyers and teaching lawyers and coaching lawyers, we either make decisions or decisions are made for us. So my dad dying, obviously not my decision. My first job out of law school for three years, I put my heart and soul into this firm. And on September 21st, 1995, they fired me uh, without warning, without uh, explanation, except they're going in a different direction. Uh, and I had no clients. I had not a ton of money and I was about to get married and I had to hang a shingle. I mean, after that experience, I did decide not to apply for jobs. I said, I never want to work for anybody ever again. And I was young. I was, you know, 1995, I was, you know, 27, 28 years old. And I just said, I can't do this. I don't want to put uh, my life in anybody else's hands again. I want to start taking control of my own destiny. So without a case, I rented a little office. Uh, a buddy of mine from law school 
introduced me to his landlord and they gave me an office. I rented a desk. I rented a chair. I shared a receptionist. I couldn't afford a secretary. And I, I, I went out to uh, try to make a living. Mike's no stranger to dealing with fires, both figuratively and literally. He titled his book Fireproof for a reason. Catastrophic moments, personal and professional times of hardship, force us to self-reflect and get to the core of who we are and why we do what we do. I wanted to hear the nitty-gritty of Mike's greatest periods of adversity, the moments that define who he is today. In 2008, I was 20-some-odd employees. We had a beautiful little office building, 6,400 square feet in uh, Southfield, Michigan, that we had recently designed and, and built out. And I put my heart and soul into it. And it was beautiful. And we all loved this office. And one Friday morning, three o'clock in the morning, I got a call that my office was on fire. And I hopped in the car. I'm getting chills telling the story. I mean, I, I, I sped to my office and I saw the fire trucks there and my secretary was there and we stood there and we cried and that was devastating. And that was three, four, five in the morning. And that was a Friday. And by 9 a.m., we had managed to set up a tent in the parking lot. We dragged the phones with a really long cord out to the uh, parking lot. My receptionist, Jamie, who I mentioned earlier uh, from uh, the restaurant job, was answering phones at 9 a.m. My server, was protected somehow and we moved it off site and my lawyers were able to log in and get their summaries for court that morning and depositions. Nothing was canceled. Not a phone call was missed. And that was pivotal. Uh, but we had, we had lots of processes in place before that. A year before that is when I met Gina Wickman in 2007. The fire was in 2008. So we had already begun to set our processes in place. We, we had protocols for emergencies. We had protocols for snow days. And I had a team. Had I still been back in 1995 and it was just me, I don't know what would have happened. But because I had a team in place, because I had process in place, we didn't miss a beat. Mike's second crisis came in 2011. Not a literal fire this time, but a metaphorical one. Unpredictable adversity can be the catalyst for life-changing decisions. What do you do when the source of all of your cases suddenly decides to shut the door on you? One of my mentors, my deceased father-in-law, Steve, uh, introduced me to, the, to, to a very large advertiser here in town, and he put me on his list. And that what that means is I was able to get his overflow. And I recommend this for every young lawyer listening to this podcast. I think that's one of the best ways to grow your practice is to get the overflow or the B or C or D cases and cut your teeth on those. And so I did. And he was nice enough to put me on his list. He took a large percentage of my fee. I didn't care. I, I learned how to do premises cases and then eventually auto cases. And I got him so much money in referral fees. At one point, I was sending him $4 million a year in referral fees that my firm grew. I was able to hire more employees. Nobody in my town knew my name, which I was fine with. I was getting 60, 70% of my cases from this person. And it was wonderful. Life was good. Uh, my advertising budget was basically zero. And uh, it was based on relationships. And I gave these people the best customer service I knew how, because I didn't want them calling this referral source and saying, hey, Mike didn't call me back. 
Mike, this or that. So I, I gave his clients or his referrals almost better service than I gave my own because I was getting my own referrals. I've been practicing now for a while. So my clients were sending people and I was winning trials and I was gaining reputation, defense attorneys, judges, insurance people were sending me cases. So I was getting some cases. And then in May of 2011, he called me up on my cell phone and said, I need to come see you, which was strange because he's he'd never done that before. And uh, he came into my office and he sat down on my couch and said, I'm not sending you any more cases. And I said, why? He said, well, because we're going in another direction. It was another one of these vague, strange things like the time I was fired uh, in 1995. And I said, okay, didn't show him my panic, didn't show him my fear, didn't show him that I wanted to cry. And he left and I was, you know, socked in the stomach. I had a bunch of employees out my door that I felt very responsible for. I had kids. And it was another one of those fires. And it was devastating uh, in the moment. And this is one of those things that I couldn't have controlled, right? And, and, and like when I got fired in 95, I went on my own, which was a great, great, great thing, right? I'm thankful to the gods that they fired me. And then when this person fired me again, I was scared. But then it gave me an opportunity to write the rest of my destiny. And I could have taken the cases that were coming in, laid off some people and had a little firm and done okay. And that was an option. But because my COO and I had such good data and such good process in place, we met and he said, Michael, you know, you're spending $4 million a year in referral fees. Eventually we could have those cases and keep that 4 million and we should take that money and put it on TV and compete in our market in a very, very, very competitive market. We over $30 million a year spent on TV advertising. And within a few minutes, it wasn't a very hard decision. I decided that's what we're going to do. We started interviewing people to create some beautiful commercials for us, which is what we did. That was 2011. June 15th, 2011 is the first commercial that I ran. I had no idea if it was going to work. But I trusted myself and I trusted my instincts and I trusted my gut and I trusted my team and things worked out. But it was, uh, it was, uh, it was a scary couple, couple months there to see if it was going to work. Do you believe, I mean, looking back at, you know, let's say at 2011, because we, we know how the story ends, right? You go on to become Michigan's largest personal injury uh, law firm. But prior to this, in you know, 2011 and even before that, at the time you were getting you know, the majority of your cases through referral from one of the largest advertisers in Michigan. Do you believe that you would be, you would still would have become the largest personal injury firm in Michigan had it not been for the experience of that those referrals being stopped and you having to build the practice and essentially build your own marketing powerhouse? No, that was never a goal. Uh, it was never my goal to be as big as we are. My COO tells a story. John tells a story that I think he was number 29 hired into my firm. And I remember, he remembers, and I kind of remember during the interview, I said, I don't want more than 30 employees. And I, I just set these artificial numbers in my head. I just, because I didn't want to be so unwieldy. I mean, it was scared me. And then we hired our 30. And then I said, okay, John, I do not want more than 50 employees. 
And he said, okay, Michael, I hear you. And then I said, John, I do not want more than 100 employees. I will hurt you if you hire 100 employees. And then, John, if you hire 150 employees, and we went over 150, and the problem is the success came, the calls came, the bigger cases came. When I was just getting that referral person's uh, leftovers, which I was very happy with, they were the B and the C cases. Now I was working them up to become A cases, but they were the not the cream of the crop. They were not the trucking cases. They were not the brain injuries. They were a sore neck or a sore back. And I took the time with these people to find the injuries and the head injuries and the emotional injuries. And I worked them up to settle them for good dollars. Or I, if, if they wouldn't settle, I'd try those cases personally and, and we had success. But I never dreamed to have... 150 plus employees. I never dreamed to be the largest personal injury firm in Michigan. It was never a goal. I set goals. That wasn't a goal. It just happened because I think most lawyers are going to admit it's hard to say no to cases. I'm at a point now where we set goals and we do say no to cases and we do refer out over 100 cases a week to other law firms like I used to be. Uh, we have about 20 different law firms that we send cases that either we don't want to handle, can't handle, too busy to handle, not in our expertise, whatever. And now we're getting referral money back, which is another source of revenue for my firm, which I'm not shy about or talk about. I mean, it, that's that's an important part of it because we're spending the money on the TV to get the, to get the cases. So the answer is not a goal, would not have happened had that not happened because I am one of those weirdly hyper loyal people that I would have been happy doing what I was doing. I would have been happy with 30 employees. I would have been happy making what I was making. This was not, you know, it was never a money thing. I, I didn't need to be the biggest. I didn't need to, to do this, but it kind of came, I'm not going to say easy, but the calls started coming. The cases were good. Lawyers wanted to work here. I have, so many of my lawyers have been here 10, 15 years. It's just kind of working. So then I'm curious, if it wasn't the goal from the onset, what what has been driving you? Like, What is essentially preventing you from saying, you know what, I like where we are. Let's continue to maintain. Why, why continue to invest? That's a great question that I've never thought about and I've never been asked. Um, I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, I've realized it. I'm the visionary of my firm. I'm an entrepreneur and entrepreneurs are, are not satisfied. We don't get complacent. And we always want to improve. And that's just kind of what's happening. And we adapt. And I love that part of it. I love the problems. I mean, I'm in my best element when I'm solving problems. And we've had lots of problems, as I've laid out in the book. And, and we've had problems I didn't lay out in the book. Like one just popped in my head. We used to make over a million, $2 million a year in premises liability cases. And then 10, 12 years ago, they outlawed premises cases, basically 98%. And you bob and weave. Okay, so let's go to Social Security. Let's go to this. Let's go to that. That's fun. And so I'm having fun. And if it all ended today, okay. So it was it was never about the money. It was never about having as many lawyers. It was just, I'm having fun. I'm enjoying it. And that's one reason, I guess, why we wrote the book. And we're starting to, to do that kind of stuff because we got to a place where we could. I mean, the firm is basically running pretty darn smoothly, even during pandemic times. So we thought, let's share some of these things that we've put in place over the last 
15, 20 years and share the knowledge because that's given back and I like to give back. I believe that entrepreneurs stand to benefit greatly from the right mentors or coaches. Mike found that to be the case in 2007 when he teamed with none other than Gino Wickman. We featured Gino on episode 10 of this podcast, so if you haven't heard it yet, you'll want to bookmark that one for your next listen. Gino taught Mike one of his key concepts, which is an uncomfortable truth for a lot of people. You'll never be good at everything. And that's why the best leaders focus on their strengths and surround themselves with a great team. I had heard Gino Wickman speak at a uh, seminar. I was in the audience, very impressed. And his rates were, you know, five plus thousand dollars a day. And I said, I can't afford that. And I can't afford eight hours of a day to spend with a coach. Boy, was I wrong. So it took me a couple of years that I wish I didn't uh, hesitate. Uh, it was a mistake. Uh, but I finally hired him. Uh, that was over 12 years ago, maybe 13 years ago. And I can't say how much a consultant or a coach, whatever you want to call uh, them, how important it is. And I know you do that at, at Crisp, and I'm, I commend it. It's so important that lawyers learn about how to run a business, learn what an integrator is, learn what a visionary is. I had no clue, but because I learned it, it has freed me up to not be everything. And that's another part of this book that lawyers try to be everything, everything. And you can't do it. It's impossible unless you want to be a two, three, four person law firm, nothing wrong with that. But if you want growth and you want freedom to do anything, be with your kids or write a book or travel or try more cases or whatever it is, you need help. And whether it be an office manager, an integrator, a COO, CFO, whatever it is, but most lawyers I come in contact with have no clue what any of that means, don't know their numbers, don't know their data, don't know how to hire and fire and reward and recognize people properly. And that's been the game changer. So game changer. I like that title right there. <laughs> I didn't th I, that was out of purpose, Michael. So before you wrote this book, what's interesting to me is you were actually featured in another book uh, in, in Rocket Fuel. And although I know you, you wrote your book in first person, you make it very clear at the onset that you wrote this together with John. John comes up a lot and, and you, you, make, you give him a ton of credit in the sense that the, the Mike Morrison Law Firm would not be what it is today had it not been for you finding John in the, in the collaborative way in which you two work together. But I know we've used these words visionary and integrator uh, just over the past few minutes. But if you could define those and then also speak to John and, and his role in your practice? So Gina Wickman, uh, in, in all of his books, starting with Traction, talks about you know, the visionary integrator role and how every company, you know, Gino's never worked for a law firm before. So I thought that was fascinating. He doesn't know the difference between a med mail case and an auto case and a dog bite case, and he's still with me 13 years later. It just doesn't matter. So a visionary is also known as an entrepreneur, in my opinion. And that's the person who comes up with 100 ideas a day, and maybe one of them are good. And usually they don't have enough time to follow through on any of the ideas because they're also working on implementing everything in their business or law practice for purposes of our discussion. So I first had to realize, okay, Michael, you're the visionary. You're acting as the visionary and the integrator. You can't or else you'll, you'll never grow. You can't bust through the roof by yourself. 
And so that was me. I'm a clear visionary. I love new ideas. I love reading and learning and just brainstorming. That's just like one of my favorite things to do. What I don't love doing is reading long emails. I don't love reading long contracts. I don't love long in-depth conversations about things that don't really excite me. And the integrator is the manager, is the COO, is the person that takes the ideas from the visionary and gets them done, implements them. So for example, I would say, let's start a social security disability practice. We are referring out all of our cases. We're getting nice little referral fees. I don't think it's all that hard of a practice. What do you guys think? Great idea, great idea, great idea. Okay, John, make it happen. And then I'm done. So now he starts a practice. We're making over a million dollars a year in referral, not in referral fees, in fees for social security. And all I did was come up with the idea. That's a classic example of a visionary integrator. And I can give you a thousand more examples, but he takes my ideas and he makes them happen. I hire a great person, another person, he makes sure they're doing their job. He is running this firm for me. So it frees me up to do the things that I love to do and that I'm great at. And he's doing the things that he loves to do and he's great at. So we're a great combination. We're complete opposites. Uh, he's very, very, very conservative. I'm pretty darn liberal. That's just one of our extremes, but it works. And John has taken this firm uh, to new heights. Mostly, I mean, the number one key is, is data, but he, he knows our numbers. When we talk and I have a question, he brings me graphs and charts and numbers to explain exactly what's happening. It makes sense to me. He's learned how to talk to me in a way not to make him too much. If he shows me a graph with too much crap on it, I say, I never want to see that again. Fix it and show me, you know, answer me this question. And that's how we've grown. It's just a, it's a great yin and yang. It's a great situation. I believe every law firm needs at least a great office manager. But more than that, if you really want to grow, you need a COO, CFO, someone who could take charge, who could take your ideas, who could blow up the practice. He's the one who negotiates everything from leases to equipment to supplies. You know, with the COVID thing, I'm not the one who's going to have to figure it all out. I have a team of eight. They're, they're spending hours and hours and hours and hours on it. And I'm going to prove it at the end of the day. So it frees me up to continue to talk to my clients, to continue to talk to my lawyers, to be able to be with my children more and travel more and do what I want to do and golf more, whatever it is, whatever you want to do. I get to choose because I have him and I trust him and I rely on him. And I've seen this happen. I have other friends who I have referred to this process. They have hired COOs and the same exact thing is happening for them. So this is reproducible. I've seen it happen, and I know you've seen it happen lots of times, and it's just a, it's a rare thing to have a visionary and an integrator work to be the same person. It, it doesn't work all that often. It's rare. It's a unicorn, and most lawyers listening to this are that, but they're probably hitting the ceiling and need that second 
in command. Now, I imagine there's going to be people that are listening to this and they're thinking, man, must be nice to have a John. And they probably can't have John. But in terms of finding an integrator like this, how does somebody even get started on this process? Where do they, where do they find uh, the right person? That's a hard thing to do. And, and, and that's a, it's a process. And I have a friend who owns a financial services firm and he's been through four Johns. John's not a lawyer, by the way. He's an MBA. So you got to look outside the box because I've had people say, you have somebody running your firm that's not a lawyer? Yeah, I do. And thank God. So it's really about networking. I mean, John worked in the auto industry. I mean, he didn't work in law or insurance or he knew nothing, but he was a, a people person. He was smart. He had an MBA. You may have to hire a headhunter. Uh, go on LinkedIn. Go on Indeed. Send out emails to every single person you know. This is what I'm looking for. Be ready to pay. I mean, that was a big hurdle, Michael, that you have to spend money to make money. I mean, you you know, and it, it has absolutely changed my life. Every lawyer I know that has done this, and there's not that many that I know, but the lawyers who do get a great second in command has experienced the same type of relief. I mean, the second John started, I was 70% less work. I was like, okay, now what do I do? But if you're doing something out there that you don't love to do and you're not good at, find somebody who is and turn it over to them and you won't believe how good you feel and how freed up you are. And then all that extra time, go do something else. Go get more cases. Go try more cases. Go mentor. Go write a book. Go travel. Go learn the piano. I don't care what you do, but you're going to have so much extra time on your hands when you delegate all that bullshit. It's life-changing. You can't talk about building a predictably profitable law firm without bringing up the legal jumbotron. So this is probably the biggest, single biggest thing uh, that John and I talk about in the book and that has changed my firm. So the jumbotron principle is basically, imagine sitting in a stadium. And what you do, you're constantly looking up at the jumbotron. And why? Well, you need to know the score. You need to know how many yards to the next first down. You need to know time, timeouts, blah, 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 everything. But the coaches and the players are looking at the jumbotron too. And they're not just looking at the replays to see how good they look. They're looking to see how many points I need. Do I need to go for two? Do I need to go for one? Do I need to go for a field goal, touchdown, whatever it is? And Without the Jumbotron and without somebody telling them these numbers, they're in the dark and they can't, can't play the game and they can't win. So before I met John or Gino, I didn't have a Jumbotron. It was black. It was blank. And I was, my secretary would say, hey, Michael, we need a new copy machine. I said, well, is there enough money in the bank for a new copy machine? I didn't know. I barely knew how much money I was making. And I know that sounds crass and weird and strange, but I'll bet you a lot of lawyers out there have no idea what the numbers really are, expenses and how much they're making. They know there's money in the bank. Great. I could pay myself. I could pay people. And just making decisions like that, you know, without a budget, without thought. So John put together a really robust scorecard or Jumbotron that talked about how many calls come in a day, a week, a month, how much money is coming in a day, a week, a month, how much settlements 
are coming in. Who's making the settlements? What lawyers are making the settlements? What people on my team are doing what? Who is sending me referral money? Who am I sending cases to, et cetera? And I mean, the Jumbotron is, is now pages. It's supposed to be one page. Uh, we have one key page that I look at every Tuesday morning at 8.30 a.m. during my meeting with my executive team, 90 minutes, doesn't get moved ever. And the Jumbotron concept is so key. I've showed it to some law firms and it blows their mind. A couple of them actually have hired John to do, do it for them because they couldn't figure it out and it's changed their entire practice. Because not only does the Jumbotron tell you where you're going, but in January, we set goals. So let's just take how many cases you want to sign up a week. It doesn't matter what type of lawyer you are, divorce lawyer, criminal lawyer, personal injury lawyer. My goal is 40 auto truck motorcycle cases a week. Okay, so on Tuesday, we look at the week before. How many do we sign up? 43. Great. Nothing to talk about. What would we sign up the next week? 45. Great. Nothing to talk about. Next week, 32. Okay. Not a great week. Next week, 30. Huh. Next week, 28. Okay. Issue. You make it an issue. At the part of the meeting where we discuss issues, we say, guys, what's going on? Why are we down three weeks in a row? That's not good. And we talk about advertising. We talk about marketing. We talk about what's going on in, in, in the world. We talk about, is it a holiday weekend? Is it, a, is it over the Christmas holidays? Whatever. The point is, the Jumbotron acts like a smoke detector. It beeps when there's a problem. And when there's a little bit of smoke, you could put it out with a cup of water. But if you don't have a beep and you don't have a Jumbotron and it turns into a three-alarm fire, you're screwed and the whole thing burns to the ground. And because we've been collecting data for so many years, we're able to know how was this week last year and the year before and the year before, and we have averages. And so we're able to identify problems in real time and dig in and solve them in real time. And that's a huge huge benefit to anybody listening that you need to know your numbers so you can identify the problems. And the other key is that once you know your data, you can then do projections. So in January of every single year, John tells me how many cases he thinks we're going to sign up and how much money we're going to gross in my firm. And the first time he did this 10, 11 years ago, we all laughed at him and said, that's impossible. Every case is different. Everything is, you know, we don't know how many cases we're going to get. He is within one one hundredth of a percent right every single year. Now, doesn't mean we don't have problems. Doesn't mean we don't have to fix things. Doesn't mean, you know, COVID is a, is a strange thing. So numbers are, are this or that, but the numbers don't lie. So the averages are there. The amount of cases you have are there and it just works. Once Mike was able to free himself up to focus on his strengths, he went all in on an area that he loved, his firm's marketing. Mike believed that in order for his firm to stand out, their marketing needed a new flavor. They would go against the grain of traditional vanilla legal ads and instead go the route of Cherry Garcia. So let's go back to that 2011 story when I was uh, fired from, from 60 plus percentage of my cases, I had to go on TV. So I watched all the commercials 
and I scoured the country and I didn't like the lawyer commercials out there. I thought they all sucked. Uh, they were vanilla. They were a big commodity. Just they're all the same. But I kind of got it because part of my brain said, well, if it's working for them, it works. People don't care. People like crappy commercials. But something in my heart and in my gut said, we need to be different because I don't have a name. I don't have $10 million a year to compete. So we need to do something different. So I wrote down a list of all the qualities of their commercials. They're boring. They're arrogant. They're bullies. A list of 10 or 12. And then I wrote down the opposite. They're bullies. Lawyers. The lawyers come across as bullies. Well, we come across as compassionate. They are mean. We're nice. They're greedy. We give back. And I did this exercise and they're, they're serious. I'm self-deprecating, right? They're not funny. I'm funny. I have a good personality. So I wanted people to see me, see who they're hiring. Why do they hire? You know, that's a really a, a billion dollar question. So we tried showing who I really am and not being afraid. And then, you know, one, one of the lawyers uh, had their family on the commercials. And that was a big drive. People called them because they had family, even though some of their family members actually didn't work in the firm. They, they were lawyers. They put them on the, they made it look like they were all working on cases. I said, well, I don't have any lawyers in my family, but I do have a mom who is funny and nice. So somebody suggested putting my mom in a commercial and uh, we did. And I get hundreds of emails from strangers saying, I don't need a legal service right now, but I love your mom. I love your commercials. If I ever need a lawyer, I will call you. And an interesting story, one of my competitors, one of the bullies, uh, has recently run an ad uh, on my local market, basically making fun of my commercials, saying, I don't do skits with my mom, blah, blah, blah. I've gotten 100 emails just on that saying, keep your mom in your commercials. He has no idea what you're talking. he's talking about. You're the best. And he's a bully. And he's trying to push me around. And I'm not changing for him. I'm controlling my own destiny. And, and so being different is the key, finding your message, finding your niche, not hiring one of these big advertising agencies that's going to run the same ad in 20, 30, 40 markets, in my opinion. Doing unique commercials, like the videos your firm produces, are all unique. You talk to the people, you find out who the lawyer is, what makes them special, what makes them unique. That's why I love what Chris produces because everyone's different, because every lawyer's different. And you take the time to know who the lawyer is. So I'm, I'm advocating whoever's listening, you have to know yourself. Who are you? What makes you unique? What makes you special? What's going to make somebody call you? Because you win and you fight and you put on boxing gloves like everybody else because you're the hammer. I, maybe in certain markets, obviously, these guys are successful. But for me, in my market, I wanted to stand out in a different way. It's obviously worked. My budget is not as big as some of the other guys. And yet, I believe we're getting a very nice share of our market because of our commercials, our Cherry Garcia. They're memorable. 
And over the years, as you talk about this path and, and on the way to becoming Michigan's largest personal injury firm, you know, it seems that all growth can come at a price. And in and you've had your fair share of critics. So it, it, it seems to me that the most successful people, they're getting both positive and negative attention, but the ones who play it safe really get no attention at all. So I, I know you're clearly not someone who likes to play it safe, but uh, do you believe it is possible to grow a business to the scale at which you've grown yours without your share of critics? No. And somebody once told me the story, you know, everybody wants to kill the king, right? And I'm not the king, but we do have the largest firm I don't know how my revenue compares to other firms, but you know we're doing okay. I've had lots of competitors come after me. I've had insurance companies come after me, all baseless things. I've had the uh, the grievance commission come after me. We beat that. People people don't want one firm or one person to be that successful, and I have had to grow thicker skin during this success because the success wasn't planned the the growth wasn't planned and the uh critics and the controversies that that have come with the success wasn't planned didn't like it nobody wants to be you know accused of things and called names and and all this stuff but when you know that you're doing nothing wrong it's easier to sleep at night and you defend yourself and you move on and because I have such a good process and such a good firm in place that it makes any controversy easier because you have a team. You're not a solo. You're not dealing with this on your own. If you put yourself on TV, you're going to get hate mail. You're going to get people swearing at you. Get your ads off the TV. I'm tired of seeing your ugly face and your mom and your hair and blah, blah, blah. I mean, that doesn't happen all that often. The first two, three, four, five, ten times, it jarred me. Now I laugh. I don't respond. You delete it and you move on. But just like podcasts, you get negative comments, I'm sure. I get negative comments. Okay, there's haters out there. There's people out there who are not going to be happy with your success. And if you want to play it safe, don't put yourself out there. And I didn't always dream about being on TV. I never wanted to be that face front face guy the the voice uh, of the firm but i kind of had no choice because you know i didn't want to lay people off i didn't want to shut down so i said okay let's do this we're going on tv and it's been good overall it's been very very positive you just got to grow a thicker skin and know what you're doing is good and i i don't have any regrets so You've clearly, you've got a good thing. You guys have a strong presence in your market. The firm is very successful. You've got a great practice overall and a line team. Why write this book? Essentially, why, why share your secrets with the world? One of the things we talk about all the time is giving back. And, you know, we, we give back to our community in many, many ways. Uh, we've given away 140,000 backpacks full of supplies every year to the Detroit students, every student uh, in the elementary schools leaving nobody behind. And this felt like time to give back to the legal community who's given me so much. I've always loved teaching. I taught at my law school for a few years. My dad was a teacher. I like lecturing. I like talking. And we felt like we had this special information that so many people didn't have. And it felt selfish to not share it. 
And I know that my competitors are going to read it. And in my little market here in Detroit, my one little DMA that I'm in, uh, but I don't care. I mean, I'm at a point that I just don't care. And I love going to the conferences like the CRISP conference and meeting new people and, and, and sharing um, these ideas and learning and speaking. It's a passion. I love doing it. And I wasn't afraid of somebody using this five-step method in my market and taking over because, you know, like Gary V said at your last conference, I'm going to tell you a lot of good stuff and less than 1% of you are going to do it. Now, I, I hope that's not the case. I hope people read the book and do it and then call me and thank me. That's okay. I mean, this will be, you know, part of my legacy. Uh, I think that's probably part of it too, that one of my, you know, with the team that we were writing the book with asked me, well, what's your dream for the book? And I said, my dream for this book is that every law student reads this book before they leave law school. Because I wish I had this book 30 years ago when I was going out, because a lot of this stuff has taken me 30 years to learn. And that would be fun if it was a mandatory reading in law school that every law student had to read, because that would set them up to understand things that they didn't have to take 10, 20, 30 years to learn. Well, and I will say that anyone who's listening to this that has not picked up the book, I would certainly encourage them to. Uh, the name of the book is Fireproof. And I, I will also say that when, and this has been my view for years, it was actually the reason I wrote my book as well, is just from the standpoint that when people are more empowered, to not only lead better businesses, but lead better lives. That's good for everyone. It's good for everybody around them. It's good for their communities, their clients, the, their teams, their families. And the, kind of the rising tide raises all ships is that you know people that are truly abundance-minded don't look at it from the standpoint of, hey, let me educate my competition. This is going to become more difficult for me. But rather saying that if we're all operating, we're all running better organizations that are providing more value out there into the marketplace, how is that not a good thing? So as we come to a close, this being the, the game-changing attorney podcast, Mike, what does being a game changer mean to you? It means doing things differently. It means treating your staff with respect. It means being loyal. It means having uh, the courage to stand up for what's right and be able to have a firm that you're proud of by sharing everything you can, by sharing your knowledge by making your community better, by giving back to your community in any way possible. That is, that is what we try to do. Uh, that's why we set up a foundation to do it. And it's been a game changer for us in Detroit here. And it's, it's just been a wonderful ride. And it's, I'm only 52. It's still going. I want to give a huge thanks to Mike Morris for taking the time to speak with me today. You know, what particularly resonated with me was the fact that had it not been for those fires and those adverse situations, Mike believes that his firm would not be the largest personal injury firm in Michigan today. Those adversities led to the pivots that later defined him and his firm and really built a predictably profitable law firm. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. Join us next time and we'll be talking to nationally acclaimed trial attorney, Mark Lanier. He actually posted on his website at a big international firm, I beat Mark Lanier. These are people who have lawyers that clerked for the Supreme Court of the United States and they put that on their page or have handled all of these things. And he's just got on there, 
I beat Mark Lanier one time 11 years ago. And I'm, I'm like, oh, gee, really? If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could share it with at least one ambitious law firm owner that you think would benefit. For more details on our interview with Mike Morse, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit gamechangingattorney.com. Oh, 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 o